Hey, welcome to Fearless Paranoia, where we are busy, busy, busy trying to demystify the complex, confusing, and in this particular episode, dark and stormy night versions of cybersecurity. I am Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I am Ryan, the totally not AI-generated cybersecurity architect. Just what an AI-generated cybersecurity architect would say. This is part three of our ChatGPT-inspired, but notably not entirely ChatGPT-authored, series of episodes on... AI, and most specifically, large language models and generative AI. For better definitions of the specific terms we're talking about, please listen to episode one of this series. And for a discussion on the potential and the positive impacts that these systems can do and may have on humanity in general, please listen to episode two. In this episode, however, we are talking about what the problems are, the peril that may ensue with use of these systems as they are now and the direction that they are going. We are assuming, by the way, for all of these discussions, that the development continues apace. I would love to spend a ton of time breaking down the letter sent by all of those AI experts and Elon Musk calling for a six-month pause. I also want to mention that it was really foolish to add someone who has publicly stated that they are creating their own anti-woke version of ChatGPT3 to a letter asking everyone to pause all development for six months. The much more proactive step they took was to actually ask the FTC to start exercising their authority in this area. That's something we'll get to in, in just a minute. But right now, we're going to talk about two big things. One is the issues with the current systems of generative of AI and large language models. And then we're going to talk about the potential dark future of these systems. And you know what? We don't have a ton of time, so let's just dive right into it and kick it off. Ryan, you can go ahead and get us started. What is the first big problem that you see with the current system? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. We talked about the good. Let's get to the bad before the ugly. I think one of the major current issues right now is curiosity and general misuse. And that's I know that's kind of two things that we lump together, but let's start with general misuse. Stuff like cheating on tests, people producing essays and papers at school using this type of tool. So again, they're not learning anything. They're using it to bypass the intended concept behind what they're doing. And that type of just skirting the rules is a fact it's cheating. The system's not there for cheating. It's there to make us better. And this really just kind of pushes away from that experience. The general misuse that I was talking about was using the tool to generate things that obviously are outside of the intention, generating things like malware code, bad code, generating perjured documents, generating anything that kind of goes outside of the concept of the benefits provided behind the length, the large learning model concepts. Okay, so my first one is going to be inaccuracy. It's often wrong. And just for clarification, I think we'll talk about various different types of models, but for this particular one, I'll start with ChatGPT, the chatbot based on the GPT large language model. The bottom line is that just like anything, search engines produce wrong answers all the time, but the search engine is still providing you primarily a list of responses to what you're asking. And that list is comprised of websites or online material available to respond to your inquiry or your question. Right now, when you ask chat GPT a question and it's wrong, not only will you not know because it will state it confidently. You're basically imagining someone standing in front of you with the self-assuredness of a white male finance bro telling you exactly what to do with your 401k, regardless whether or not they're correct. And most of these things don't cite their sources for you. So without being able to 
even check on what their answer is. They're answering confidently and they will make up answers. It's called hallucinating. That's what the term is for these systems. When they don't know an answer, they don't say, I don't know. And part of the problem is that they don't necessarily know that they don't know because they don't have a full window into a question you're asking. What was funny is I shared with you an interaction that I had on back-to-back days where I asked it a question and it gave me an entirely wrong answer. And it was clear based on the answer that it didn't understand my question because it wasn't even answering the same topic. And it should have said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Can you clarify? The next day I asked it a very similar question and instead of answering me, it asked for the clarification. Now that's a nice step in the right direction, but the bottom line is you don't know when they're wrong. And unfortunately they don't either. And that's part of it trying to learn is it's going to have to figure those pieces out, but how many pieces of inaccurate information does it hand out along the way while it's trying to learn? That leads into what my next piece is. That's erosion of confidence. So you've got cheating as a problem. You've got bad information or bad outputs as a problem. You've got people producing inherently misleading or deceptive documents using these type of tools as a problem. Overall, as a society, that leads to not just us looking at the benefits like we did in the last episode of these type of tools, but it erodes people's confidence in these tools and in their potential outputs going forward. So now people have to look at all the things that this can output and question every version or every instance of those outputs that they find out there because who's to know going forward if one was produced legitimately or one was produced by some sort of generative AI. And so without that confidence, that whole trust and confidence we have in human-to-human interactions is going to start to get really tested at its core by these type of technology. The interesting next step to that is when you lose confidence that something comes from a certain place, how does it impact the people who are placing that information out there so that they gain trust, which actually leads into my question. Now, we actually had a previous conversation on this where I think I rattled off about 30 minutes on what I will generally describe as copyright and legal issues. The case study we can use for this one will be generative AI image systems like Midjourney. Now, there's the funny story about Getty Images with so many copied Getty Images that the watermark actually started appearing on their generated items. But there's an interesting little quirk here. So fair use is a concept that is very important in copyright law. And it basically says that there are some ways that copyrighted materials can be used legally. One of the key elements of that is what percentage or what portion of the originally copyrighted work is used in the reproduction. Now, a good example of this is when I have a blog post that I'm writing and just for humor's sake, use a brief, say, 20-second YouTube clip from The Simpsons, just as illustrating that concept. Or let's just even show it like 10 seconds. A 10-second clip out of a 23-minute TV show is not generally that significant, but it still is, it still has some significance. Well, in these generated images, we're talking about one one thousandth of the image is being reused to create this new image. Almost no court would consider that, if a human were to do it, a breach of copyright. But that's not how this happened here. This happened because all of these images were fed into a device that people then use to create something for which, for the most part, they're paying or they're subscribing. And user subscriptions, as anyone who's run a website, know is a monetizable piece of information so that they are paying to get the output from. So what law applies to the use of copyrighted images? This is stuff that people actually used their own personal expertise to create, spent their own personal money to copyright and protect, and are now having used exclusively to train a tool that will generate images for the financial benefit of the person who owns the tool. And they had no say in whether or not these things were used. The same thing applies to ChatGPT and all the websites that it crawled, because 
when it crawls a website and takes the information from a website, it's not clocking a user visit for advertising purposes, and it's not citing the website. So all of the benefits that people had for putting information online for free are gone. All the benefits people had for putting artwork online for observation. People used to make fun of buying NFTs because all you really had to do to borrow that person's NFT is right-click copy because if an image is going to be displayable on the internet, it needs to be downloadable. Otherwise, you can't see it. So we have huge copyright issues and huge legal issues in general that have not been and are not being addressed because this is being pushed so quickly. And it seems to me that these systems are being pushed based on the Uber mindset. Uber's whole scheme for dealing with regulation was to push so hard and so quickly into an area that by the time the regulators clamped down on it, by the way, Uber knew that the regulators would react negatively, that what they were doing was against the law. But the hope was that they would be able to have such a push and have gained so many users so quickly that regulation became functionally impossible. That seems to be what ChatGPT is doing now and what all these other ones are doing now because the bottom line is none of these questions have been answered and a lot of them should be. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilient Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. The information security around most of these models is pretty lacking at the moment. The protections around it are pretty awful. The fact that they are getting all of this input information from everybody that's jumping on and having conversation with ChatGPT, and that's all going right back into effectively the R&D of the tool. I don't think the average user really considers their interaction being captured as they're dealing with most of their interactions on websites. That's a problem all across the internet, but this is a tool right here that is not just a part of that problem. It's actively using that type of access to make itself and what it does better. And again, I think a lot of people are happy to just kind of click OK and accept the ability to use the tool without understanding what they're actually giving up. And I think the next step in this kind of segues between existing problems into more potential and broader ranging problems, algorithmic bias. Now, technically, the earlier versions of ChatGPT had what we call an open algorithm. So we at least know the process they're going by. But ChatGPT4 is entirely closed. We can't see how it operates. We can't see what rules it puts in place. We can't see what information went into it. The biggest problem that we've seen, you can see it with facial recognition, is that facial recognition is much better at recognizing white faces than any kind of colored faces. We've already seen people who have, contrary to law enforcement's routine and repeated statements that facial recognition is not used as a method to identify, but only as a supplemental method for use in criminal cases. We've already seen several cases where people have been arrested and held in jail based on false facial recognition identification. Algorithmic bias exists in these systems because the rules that are constructed for how the information is both input and how the information is modified, guided, and directed to the end user have a dramatic impact on the quality of the results that come out. And without understanding the bias that goes in, we start relying on these algorithms to do things in our cities. Plenty of cities currently have their police enforcement scheduled and designed to patrol areas based on algorithms that have been shown to be not just ineffective, but prone to racial bias because the people who programmed how this should be interpreted exhibited that bias. So there's a huge problem going forward with these closed models and algorithmic bias that will only get worse because I fear that fewer and fewer of these models are going to be available for public comment and review. And quite honestly, 
the ones that are developed privately, we won't even know that they're being used. Yep, absolutely. I think with that, one of the next ones I want to jump into is just general attribution. So we talked about how all of the different data sets, the different disparate data sets have all kind of come together to produce a single output. So it already gets to be really challenging to attribute where that response came from. So internal attribution is already a problem. But as we start to get to attributing the outputs of these, once those start to go public, and in this case, they already have, again, even something as simple as the instance of producing a paper at school, it's getting really tough for a teacher to attribute. Is that a student or is that AI that produced that result? It gets even tougher when we start getting AI that does start doing things like writing effective malware. Well, now you've got a problem too of how do you attribute this new malware? Who do you attribute it to? Right now, we're attributing things to different APTs as they come up with these malwares, they produce them, they write them, we start seeing them and then we track those back. And so we understand where these are coming from. As AI starts to do this generation, how do we do attribution and who holds the responsibility for that? Is it the person that provided the input? Was it the generator of the large language model, the engine that's behind it that produced the information and the data set that did it in the first place? Is it the generative AI owners or holders that are producing the output from the data set? Who becomes the responsible party when an AI tool is used maliciously like this? And how do we do that attribution? I think there's a lot of legal challenges that kind of exist in that space. And that's something that really is going to need to get sorted out because eventually this will get misused at scale and we will need to be able to answer those questions effectively. You know, another thing that really occurs to me is it's a present problem too with any new technology. This is a phenomenally expensive type of tool to create. OpenAI has spent billions and has promised to spend billions more to develop their large language model. It is not a simple thing to do. And the problem is as much as ChatGPT, that version is available to the public for free. What you have to do is imagine if that's what's available for free, imagine what's available for money. Privately. And the big fear that I have in a lot of these new technologies, oftentimes they're advertised as a way to close the gap between the big guy and the little guy. And I'm particularly keen to that because of my experience in legal technology. There are thousands of law firms. Most of them are small. And the question was with technology, how can you keep up with the big guys? I mean, this technology can make it so that you're doing the same quality and quantity of work that a big firm attorney and two paralegals and an associate are doing. Well, the bottom line is five years after that piece of software came out, the big law firm came out with this piece of software that would write a legal brief based on an analysis of the judge that you're going before, all the opinions they've written in the past, what judges they like to cite the most, what courts they cite the most, what cases they cite the most, how they want their arguments phrased, and will write their brief in 30 seconds with information that you couldn't even hope to ever get. And you're going to be sitting there for eight hours writing a brief based on what you think is the law and the best answer. They've already written a brief, the same quality as yours, but based on the judge and the answer they know that judge likes to give. So these systems are going to create the potential, especially the closed ones, the ones we can't see, and the ones that are hidden behind the veneer of a corporation, going to create an even bigger gap between the haves and the have-nots, or the big guy and the little guy, and make it so that there's no possible way to compete between them. I think one of my greatest fears is, as we get towards the talk about real doom and gloom, is going to be, once you get away from the ability to properly attribute what's happening, or if we just improve the effectiveness and the efficacy of this technology so fast that we don't get the ability to regulate it, as you were kind of alluding to in the past, we could see an effective and very quickly scaled capability to use this tool for malicious activity. So in the cybersecurity space, I don't think that there's a ton of people that are seriously worried today that ChatGPT is going to be writing malware that's going to take down the internet or anything to that effect or cause mass widespread intrusion or whatever impact. But I think that the capability is we see how fast the technology is advancing. We see how fast it's adopting new capabilities 
And I think there's just so many unknowns and so much uncertainty that now we're really starting to put a lot of focus on it to make sure that we understand what are all the possible doom and gloom outcomes and what can we do at this point to be prepared for the situation in which this actually does come to fruition. So now instead of just dealing with current and active threats that are known, we really have to open up and step back and take a really broad perspective look at what the attack surface of the whole internet looks like and how this could be used to leverage that. So we really have to put ourselves the attacker mindset and turn this the other way around and get prepared for all of these potential instances. And this provides so many creative uses that it might be really tough without leveraging this technology to come up with a complete and exhaustive list of how to defend against it. So realistically, as quick as ChatGPT might become the, the attacker, it might also need to be the defender, which puts it in a really unique and powerful position. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I think the scariest, most immediate threat in my mind, you know, for a future threat is the evisceration of the concept of privacy. People talk about trying to regulate this stuff. I've been talking to numerous people who suggest I need to get involved with regulating. And I'm like, okay, here's the problem. Regulate what? Because every regulation has to do one or more of three things. It has to have some activity or action that it wants to promote, some activity or action it wants to limit, and some activity or action it wants to prohibit. A regulation has to be based on one of those three things. So the biggest problem we have right off the bat is, I have a very, very hard time believing that we're going to get an answer to all three of those questions that would be shared by a majority of the population. I don't think we're going to get agreement on what and how to regulate these things. Everyone can say they want them regulated, but do you want to prevent it from using information without attribution or do you want to limit its use of information without attribution? Do you want to promote the idea that it can improve and learn you know, rapidly without recording where the information it got came from? Or do you want it to make it so that every input that you gave it, if you requested that company, I want to know all the inputs that you got from me that they have to tell you. There's a lot of different things that you can do there. And the big problem is that without an, an enforceable and enforceable with teeth regulatory scheme, you're looking at a system that will turn around and everything that you have done that is recorded anywhere suddenly becomes fair game. Imagine just one data collection company right now being able to create a full profile on you with 8,000 data points in a second. It will know what's persuasive to you. It will know what you could be blackmailed with. It will know where you've worked. It will know whether or not you've defaulted on a loan. It'll know all this, but more importantly, the inferences it gets from that, it will know how you can be persuaded. If we're afraid of TikTok algorithms persuading people's votes right now, and by the way, if you're afraid of TikTok at all, that's the thing you should be afraid of, the persuasive capability of their algorithm. Same thing applies to Facebook, same thing applies to Twitter, to LinkedIn, all of them. The persuasive capability of the algorithm is what you should be afraid of. If you are afraid of that, change the situation just slightly and start being afraid of what could happen when you don't have to be active and engaged in the system to be persuaded by it because they'll know what ads to send you. They'll know how to phrase everything just to change them slightly enough to know how to make you vote one way, to make you not go to the polls, to make you ignore one product completely, to change your mind about the persuasiveness of a person. You get someone who's an activist who's fighting to preserve the rainforest. They can slander that person from here to eternity with things that are true or false, but they'll know exactly how to frame them so that you accept them as true. The fiber of reality will be changed 
changed because of their access to your personal details, because it's the reality stone from Avengers. They will know how to twist reality just enough and for you specifically so that you see the world the way they want you to see it. That, in my mind, is the most potentially catastrophic outcome. Yeah, that is truly scary right there because you're not talking just about bad ideas or manipulation. You're talking about tailored manipulation at scale. Right. Thank you. That is a scary, scary concept and unhindered, potentially unregulated and fighting directly with other human beings for legitimacy on a playing field that they can't even compete on. I think one of the interesting ones you mentioned to me the last time was once AI develops sufficiently so that they'll show you sources, but in the time it takes you to ask them a question, they'll turn on an answer and on the back end of their programming, they will create the website that serves as the source for their misinformation and it will look legitimate and they will be able to do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, exactly. Because it could do it even in the time before it generates the output to you. Absolutely. It produces the source material first and then produces the output, sends it all to you in a matter of seconds. And to you, it's just generation time. It's expected downtime, but you have no idea of the malicious nature of the activities occurring in the background. And that's the horrifying part is when reality itself can be manufactured as support for the answer to the question that you've just asked and manufactured in such a speed that you have no basis to question it. I have one last one. I want to take us back from doom and gloom for just one second. I think one of my other biggest fears is the fact that because generative AI technology is basically producing outputs based off of all of our inputs from humanity going back to whatever we want to shove into it, I unfortunately see a lot of years of bad books, bad movies, bad music coming our way (laughs) as they continue to tear apart all of the other crap that we've put together over the course of just decades and centuries of humanity and remash it into something that's going to come out potentially maybe better, but most likely just as ugly as all the other crap that we've kind of built in the past. So The one thing that gives me a little faith about that is I don't think that any machine would have ever come up with Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. Oh, man. And that one song, I believe that song, and quite frankly, several other entire albums by the Beastie Boys, to be among the most incredible artistic creations of humanity. So that is one thing that gives me a significant amount of hope, is that a computer would not have created that. So what you're saying is in the midst of all this doom and gloom that there is still a little bit of hope that we will survive the generative AI takeover of humanity. Well, you know what? Kids, I think, reflexively hate the music their parents love. So something has to be created to replace that. Big band music was amazing as a music form. It was a uniquely American. It was both a symbol of resistance and of unity. And the kids of the 1950s thought it was garbage. They said, we don't want to see 16-piece band. We want to see a frontman. We want to see a frontman using an instrument that was barely featured at all in big bands, a guitar. And we prefer if he swings his hips. The idea of great art changes. And so at least on that front, I feel like humanity will always have a way to advance. So as long as we keep doing so, I think that there's room for the human race. All right, everybody, that's all the time we've got for today. That's been kind of a downer of an episode, but I think a very logical and important look at how this system could cause problems advancing forward. But we want to make sure that you don't read into any of this or listen to this in a vacuum. This has to be listened to along with our episode talking about the potential benefit. You know, the again, any tool that can be used to monitor can be used to oppress. So we got to control the tools. You know, we have to make sure that there are things and safeguards in place and also ways to shut the tools off. As long as the off button still works, humanity is going to be okay. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcasting systems. Please follow us on our social media accounts for any new episodes. You can also subscribe to new posts on our website, fearlessparanoia.com. If you have any ideas, 
ideas or things you want to hear us go through, please send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com. Leave us a message on our website, anything like that. For Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. Bye.